welcome to another magical stream. I'm your host, Joe Magician, and today we're going to continue our climb down, yeah, down the family tree of one of Westeros's secretly most impactful houses in the Targaryen era. Again, the Strongs on brand. This is this is apparently what I'm doing. I'm just going fully on brand for a while. Come back from vacation. I'm just going to talk about my favorite house for a bit. Last week we talked about the Witch Queen of Harrenhal, Alice Rivers. And the week before her, maybe half-brother, maybe not really sure what that relationship is there, in concert to the Dragon Queen, Rhaenyra Targaryen, of course, Arwen Strong. Logically, you'd think I continue with the House of the Dragon era, you know? Maybe with Laris or Lionel Strong or Jace Valarian, Luke Joffrey, and I will get to them. But this week, we're going we're gonna to go back to another era of House Strong. This time with King Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne and House Strong's most infamous son. That is, of course, Sir Lucamore Strong, otherwise known as Lucamore the Lusty. Lucamore could not keep it in your breeches. Go with breeches. The cautionary tale of Lucamore is one of love, passion, vows, Kingsguard, many, many children, and it almost serves as a parable for A Song of Ice and Fire for many new members of the King's Guard, as well as some old ones. But I think we should have a good amount to talk about here today. So, that. What we got on the chat today? I know that in particular, uh, Archmaester Emma, very excited, <laughs> and actually came up with something I had never seen before talking about with Lucamore and perhaps Duncan the Strong. We got uh, Aaron Mackenzie Manderley, Gazal Rostigar, anime lover Nicole, Ursula T, Nicola Yurkin, Isabel Lamego, your last great night. Hedgehogs and cats, their life agreed with the name anyway. Aldania, Jerry Hoomst. Uh, we got a whole bunch of folks in here. Oh, oh yeah, Ramona Zanfir, of course. Got a good crew going here today. So before you get going, obviously, you know, slam the MF and like button. If we get to 150 likes, we actually haven't gotten there the last couple of weeks. You know, really need some passionate slamming of the like. Be like Lucamore. Be very lusty with your liking. That doesn't sound as good out loud as it did in my head. 150 likes. I'll put on my, my silly germ hat. 200. Ye old wizard Gandalf out back there. You know, it really helps out the stream. It helps people find it because, of course, YouTube is based around algorithms and inputs. And you like the thing, then it thinks, well, maybe people like you might like it and they share it to them. It's a whole big thing. I wish it wasn't, but this is the world we live in. And I cannot force YouTube to do anything. As always, if you haven't, if it's your first time, you know, slam the subscribe button, hit that bell button so you get notifications. I've actually seen quite a lot of comments in the last few weeks that people aren't getting the notifications for the streams when they go live. Um, not sure what that's about, but you may want to make sure you have notifi notifications turned on for this channel in particular by hitting that bell button and going through the options that'll let you see things. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean... Some people do like they do like emails, they send them out to all their followers or like mailing lists, newsletters, that kind of thing. But, you know, the best way is for why is YouTube holding all these? There's nothing wrong with those comments. But what the hell? Make sure you do all the things. I really appreciate it. Helps more people find the beauty of how before we get going. Also, I wanted to say thank you to Ramona Zamfir. She dropped a 20 pound super chat before you're going. In case you were curious, along with Emma, Ramona is one of the people that is very, very excited for the stream as she is an enthusiast of the House Strong genealogy. A lot of it goes back to Lucamore. And also, actually, one this came through from uh, Morley. Hey, Mor, how's it been? How you been? $50, super generous from both of you. <laughs> Wine, women, and song for our lusty hero. And of course, to you, Joe Magician. Love you and all your fabulous content. 
Thanks, Moore. I really appreciate that. That's a very, very generous gift. I'm sure the Strongs enjoy their wine and song as well. So just some plugs for stuff that you should probably check out. I think you should check out. Of course, a lot of this is going to be influenced by Amanda Crowfood's daughter or Disputed Lands. Yeah, so many names these days. Her video on Duncan the Strong, that was actually the inspiration for how I got into all this stuff. I had read that theory of hers years ago on Westeros.org where she had tried to connect Luca Moore specifically to different uh, members in the current characters in the current timeline. In particular, she went for Dunk, but she went for quite a lot of others. I got interested in that. And then from Fire and Blood, there's a, quite a lot of other stuff that came out about them, which helped her case. But she has a video on Dunk and the Strong. I, I did a video at the same time because I kind of pushed her to do it because I thought it was such a good idea. And then we did a follow-up live stream. You know, links are down in the description here and on the podcast feed. Oh, by the way, hello, podcast feed people. I know you all watch. I just wanted to acknowledge you and say thank you for listening. And of course, uh, The Dying of the Light, George R. R. Martin's first novel, The Read-Through Continues. Chapter two of that with Aziz from History of Westeros is available if you want to check it out. I actually recorded last night chapter four with uh, Maester Mary from the Learned Hands podcast. We're going to do chapter five next week. Talk for two hours about one chapter. So like <laughs> it's typical George content. You can you can just keep digging into it. And there's so much good stuff that I've been really happy with it so far. I thought the episodes have come out great. Aziz was awesome. Mary's awesome has been awesome as well. Really interesting. It actually inspired me to go out and buy more of George's other works that I haven't read. Like I picked up Windhaven and Hunter's Run and uh, one didn't I have? Oh, an Armageddon Rag. So I've read a lot of his short stories, but I haven't read a lot of his larger, more his actual novels besides Song of Ice and Fire stuff. So I decided to give those a shot. If you saw it on Twitter, that's why I was making fun of the, the covers for these books and how ridiculous the art is. Well, hang on a second. I made fun of them because I bought some of them. That's why I became aware of it. So <laughs> all sitting down here in a pile. I've been, oh, everything just kind of shuddered. That wasn't good. <laughs> thousand worlds book club no no no. i mean that's basically what i'm doing on patreon we're just doing it with dying of the light first i know nanticast did one on fever dream which is his vampire horror steamboat story <laughs> i haven't read that one but apparently i had a lot of fun with it so i'm not sure if amanda's here today she was excited about the stream but she's a busy gal so who knows and then of course upcoming projects to look forward to on the channel other than streams i mean we're going to continue talking about how strong for a little bit here because I'm just sort of on a tear at the moment, but you can look forward to my super secret project, which a few people know about, but I'm not spoiling it before it gets released. It's going to be a different one. After that, there's a Stannis Baratheon video I have to make to fulfill uh, my patron goal. I think it was if I got 75 patrons or something like that, I said I would make a video about Stannis where I don't insult him the whole time. The whole time. I probably will still insult Stannis, but that will be coming up after that. And then there's a whole bunch of other video topics. I have uh, sort of burning a hole in the backlog. Some of them actually related to Duncan the Tall and Lucamore and some other things, one of which is probably going to get married, uh, mentioned today. So I uh, look forward to that. I also want to say thanks to uh, new patrons that have signed up since we last went live. Of course, Archmaester Irish Alchemy, who I just saw in the chat. Also, Maester's Hunt, Two Ravens, and Scott. Thank you guys for signing up. I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the patron-only stuff as well. You know. There's other stuff besides Dying of the Light, but you know, you can guys can check that out on your own time. So let's get going. Let's talk about Lucamore the Lusty, <laughs> the infamous song of House Strong. Uh, so the quote here is from actually Jamie and Loris. He's actually one of the very few members of House Strong that gets mentioned 
in the main story. In fact, I think he might be the only one that gets a name drop. So here we go. Yes. And what of Lucamore the Lusty with his three wives and 16 children? The song always makes me laugh. The truth is not so funny. He is never called Lucamore the Lusty whilst he lived. His name was Sir Lucamore Strong, and his whole life was a lie. When his deceit was discovered, his own sworn brothers gelded him, and the old king sent him to the wall. Those 16 children were left weeping. He was no true knight, true knight, no more than Terence Toyn. Just thinking about it, Robert Strong is technically a name member of Hal Strong, but he's a fake one. So, although maybe he's a real one. Hmm. This is the entrance. If you were reading A Song of Ice and Fire chronologically in terms of what gets released, this would be the first time you've heard about Lucamore. And although he come he comes up in Ari's Oakhart's chapter as well. Kind of a interesting late inclusion by George, but a really interesting one. So I thought we should start off with something I didn't do in the previous streams, and that is just like a brief history of how strong, if um, in particular, it's important for Lucamore because this time frame for the family, there's so little we know about them that you have that the context doesn't really make sense if you don't go into it a little bit. So unfortunately, if you've watched my how strong video before or the live stream I do with Amanda or her video, this may be a little redundant, but you know, hang in there. I want to start off with who the Strongs were before they rose to prominence in the era of the Dragon Kings. They were, of course, an ancient line of noble warriors descending from the first men living in the Riverlands. It seems likely that the ancient Riverman hero, Artos the Strong, is the progenitor of their house or maybe the inspiration. In my video itself, I made the connection that perhaps Artos is, I mean, that perhaps Artos and the rest of House Strong are in fact offshoots of the Starks left behind family members in the Riverlands as the Starks uh, migrated north from the Reach to the to their eventual home in Winterfell. Obviously Stark in it's in German means strong so that's like the basic level stuff but there's a lot more connections in that video that talks about oh $20 from Maura Lee. Thank you more appreciate it. For Nicola Yurikin can Lucamore be compared to Tyrion, in which ways, like, because Tyrion doesn't have any children, as far as I know. He's also not a member of the Kingsguard. I mean, the, the Lannister that honestly gets the most comparison with Lucamore is Jamie. Jamie talks about him quite a bit. It's between Aris and Jamie that we hear the most about him. I mean, I guess in terms of somebody that's like sneaking off to have secret relationships, I guess there's something there between Tyrion and uh, Lucamore. Actually, Tywin might be a better comp with his secret tunnel to the brothel. That's my, I, I'm. I don't know it's tough to see comparison between Tyrion and, and Lucamore. Personally, I don't I don't really see much there. So also we have the sigil of House Strong. It depicts the free the three branches of the river Trident on a white field, implying that they take a personal identity from the river and the Trident itself. So it's very likely that they live in and around the area of the Trident, specifically where the rivers meet. I believe, although we do know that the rivers move over time. So where the Trident is today is not necessarily where it was when the ancient Strongs may have settled their home. So where they are may be far away from the current confluence of rivers. And another thing to keep in mind is that there have been many, 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 many kings of the rivers and hills and kings of the Trident. So it's quite possible that during this time, the Strongs are one of those kings that have been lost to history or petty kings in the long past. That kind of thing happens pretty often in the Riverlands. Most of the other regions are far more stable. You look at the Reach and it's basically just been the Gardeners than the Tyrells. Same thing for the Stormlands. It was Brandons and then the Baratheons basically the entire time. The North has just basically been the Starks after they united it. The Arons overthrew the Royces. Same kind of thing. But the Riverlands, 
consistently changes hands. Many kings, lots of dynasties rising and falling in the area, which kind of squares with what we know about Riverlands in A Song of Ice and Fire proper, <clears throat> where it is very often the, the battleground site for wars that happen in the South, especially since we know that the Riverlands have been fought over many, many times with the Westernlands, the Reach, the Stormlands, and even the Iron Islands trying to take pieces away from the Riverlands. It's been the most disputed part of Westeros its entire time. And although they are known as being probably the most famous owners of Harrenhal other than Harrenhor, that ownership came relatively recently through Bywin Strong, which is Lucamore's brother. Before they were given the Ruined Fortress, there had already been five owners of Harrenhal. You have House Hor, Harris, Haraway Towers, and then Queen or Queen Rene, Queen Reina Targaryen before it finally passes to the Strongs. I do have a secret tier list of where I think their true home may be somewhere in the Riverlands, as George has not revealed, or they're more likely he hasn't made up where they were before Harrenhal. The first one is Old Stones. Now, this is a little controversial because we know the one of the owners of Old Stones was House Mud, but they fell and they lost the Riverlands quite a long time ago. Old Stones has fallen into ruins. The true name of the castle itself is not Old Stones. That's just the nickname. Nobody remembers what it's actually called. So after or before House Mud, maybe the Strongs lived there. It seems to be a thing for them moving into these uh, giant ruined castles after the true owners are gone. It also makes sense as it's on the Blue Fork. I think. And if the trident has moved, maybe there was a time when Old Stones was much closer to the confluence of the rivers than it is today. And that would certainly be thematically cool. I would like Old Stones to be a place where the Strongs lived. I've had a stupid fan theory for a while that maybe the real name of Old Stones is the Stronghold. Hope you guys enjoyed that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's dumb and it's very, very tinfoil. But if you're looking for somewhere where there's an available castle in the Riverlands, that doesn't have an owner. Well, if the Strongs abandoned the ruin of Old Stones for the ruin of Harrenhal, that would make a little bit of sense. But uh, honestly, it's far more likely that they just had like a small holdfast or a tower, some kind of like Sir Eustace Osgrey, and that's all they really had. If not, then they may have been a whole bunch of hedge knights. Just a lot of hedge knights for a long time. My other favorite part of the Riverlands that may have been the home to House Strong is Penny Tree, maybe the surrounding region. There's not a known lord for the home of Sir Arlen. And it's a land that has been fought over for many years by the Blackwoods and the Brackens. But given the connections between Pennytree and Duncan the Tall, maybe this was originally ruled by the Strongs. And after maybe they abandoned it or they went extinct, it became an area that's up for grabs. And now it has become part of the Blackwood and Bracken feud. It's the right kind of area for a house that takes after the, the Trident for their sigil. You know, it's the right area. It'd be the right kind of like economic region and like a village that somebody with a lower like political and army level for the strongs to be in charge of and it's an area that george seems to have a lot of interest in so if you're like looking for <laughs> somewhere named that doesn't that may have kind of a resonant connection to the strongs but also possibly dunk penny tree is a good one mandarley's control the riverlands they controlled the mander river which is in the reach. You guys are talking about if Tyrion is sterile. I know I have seen theories that maybe Penny is one of his children. Um, there's also theories that perhaps his first wife, what's her name? 
I cannot remember the name of Tyrion's wife, that she may have been pregnant after her time with Tyrion and her, I, I guess the right word is gang raped by Tywin's men. There have been suggestions that she became like maybe like the widow of the waterfront or something like that. that. Maybe there's a child of Tyrion running around. It'd be hard to say. Hey, Mallory. Strong stones. There you go, Aaron. You're buying a dishwasher. Well, good luck with that one, Mallory. Also, if you guys didn't see it on Twitter, Sanrixian is thinking about perhaps launching a Patreon and maybe making her artwork more of a full-time thing. So keep an eye out for when she launches that. There's a lot of people in this fandom that owe Sanrixian quite a lot, so myself included. So it'll be good to give back to her as she takes a very brave step in her life. Taisha, that's it. I'm sorry. There's been suggestions that Taisha may have been pregnant. Maybe had a child, and so maybe there's a couple kids of Tyrion's out there, but none known. Lana of Bravos, Sailor's wife. Yeah, it's the Tyrion children thing isn't the thing I am a thing I am tuned into very much. So, as you can tell, I don't have a lot of the details down. That's not one I particularly care about. But that's just how it goes. Everyone has different interests. Penny tr old stones at the top, penny tree, and there's actually this is kind of weird, but it comes from this Crusader Kings two Game of Thrones mod. They had to give the Strongs a home base, essentially, because of game mechanics. So they decided on giving them the Old Stone, which is kind of an unknown village in the Riverlands. But they placed it right next to the Trident, where there's no... If you look at the map, there's nothing really there. So, I don't know. That seems fair. That seems like a reasonable guess. Honestly, if you didn't know this about the Game of Thrones mod for Crusader Kings 2, a lot of where they place the houses is guesswork. They, like... There's even like random numbers involved with it. They're like, oh, it's like a 70% chance they're here, 30% chance they're here. Roll a dice. Okay, they're here. So don't take that stuff as canon, but I think it's a reasonable guess that there's maybe an unknown old faster abandoned castle or something like that in the area of the trident that belonged to them. Fieldstone, whatever it's called. <laughs> But otherwise, we don't really know. They first pop up in the name Histories of Westeros with Sir Osmond Strong. Note, not a lord. Osmond is not a lord. At the time of Aegon the Conqueror, the Strongs were a knightly house, or at least Osmond was. If there's a lord in the family, we don't know. George's, you know, this is one of those old, old things where the family trees aren't filled out because we're never going to see this time frame. So you kind of have to guess and put things together. So Osmond is raised... Uh, Sir Osmond is raised to be Hand of the King for Aegon the Conqueror in 17 AC and then served for an honestly astounding 17 years in the office, which makes him one of the longest running Hands of the Kings in history. You know, most of the time they die in office because they're usually, they tend to be a lot older or they fought with the king and get fired or, you know, stabby, stabby things happen to them because court politics. That kind of thing happens, but Osmond, he lasted 17 years in the role until his death in office. It's not really said what he did. I mean, what killed him, but maybe old age, something like that. But he was quite clearly well-trusted and an effective hand of the king for the triumvirate of the dragon lords under Aegon. That's one of those things that's a little bit lost the time. It's that Aegon was more the headpiece of the dragon lord dynasty at that point, the Targaryen dynasty. Senya and Rhaenys had a lot of power, much more that they shared it, but because it was Westeros, Aegon was named the head of it, the king, even though that's not really how it worked out. So I guess all three of them had a had a fondness for Lord for Sir Osmond. <laughs> oh yeah, you guys are talking about my CK streams. Yeah, those are still on there. Maybe it'll come back when it when it eventually gets released for Crusader Kings 3. It's gonna be quite a long time. Um 
We also know that Sir Osman was a war hero, that he led the forces against the pirate king, Sir Goso San. Way to go, Osman. So this is kind of the breakout for the Strongs in Westeros, or at least in the, the modern time frame. I mean, they're, they're a house that is very long lived. It goes all the way back to the First Men. <clears throat> so it may be more correct to say this is more a return to prominence for the family. I mean, there's pretty good, as I talked about earlier, there's pretty good reasons to suspect that a house this old, you know, noble warriors tracing their lineage back all the way back to the first men and presumably like the age of heroes, that maybe they were one of the hundreds of petty kings or a very ancient king of the trident, that kind of thing. This is important, though, as it tells us that the Strongs are making a very good first impression on the Targaryen rule, which doesn't always happen. Quite a lot of houses, you know try to make their way into King's Landing politics into the Dragon Lord's favor, and it goes up very poorly, and therefore things go poorly for their houses, not the Strongs. Osman did an, a stand-up job. A-plus. Way to go, buddy. Oh, a uh, super chat here from your last great night. $10. Thank you. Do you think that Jaehaerys and Alicent punished Lugamore so severely because there may have been more going on between the three? They're pretty infatuated from the beginning. I do think so. We'll get to that. Great comment. Insightful. Almost word for word for something in my document later. <laughs> but there's also one important thing about the Strongs that made them very attractive to the Targaryens in that they are not a powerful house on their own. It's kind of like the Valarians of Driftmark, where the Strongs don't have much of an army. They probably don't have that much money. If they have a castle somewhere, we don't even know the name of it, so it can't be that important. So it makes them really good as servants to the Targaryens because they can give them power without worrying that it's going to lead to them eventually like splitting off an entire region in rebellion or something like that. They went through this quite a lot for a while where their hands to the kings or the people that are elevating the power, they like specifically chose people that could not take advantage of it in the way that maybe the Tyrells could have or the way that other Lord Paramounts could. They kind of shied away from that sort of thing. And we know from maybe a similar example, we have Lionel Strong during before the dance of the dragons we talked about this during the harwin strong stream that he was well known for pulling strings for his sons and getting them jobs trying to get them marriages for instance that rhaenyra was one of the guys that made it pretty far in the process to marry rhaenyra was her future lover and sort of husband harwin strong so it's probably fair to say that during his time as Hand of the King, 17 years, Sir Osmond probably did the same thing. You know, he pulled strings for the rest of his family, tried to amass land, tried to amass wealth. I mean, we still don't know where they lived, but I, I think it would be fair to say that Osmond probably carved out some holdings or something like that for the rest of his family. It'd be pretty odd if he didn't. That's pretty normal things for, king, for Hands of the Kings, especially beloved ones. For them to be rewarded by the monarch in some way beyond just service you know <laughs> this stream's gonna be so sexy there's a lot of fucking in the stream a lot of it <laughs> slinging salami all through the realm wow so all right so we're good with the history there let's talk about lucamore lucamore strong how he ends up entering the story it's we don't know the exact relationship between Lucamore Strong and Sir Osmond. It's not explicitly said. He first appears, Lucamore appears in the story for the first time in 55 AC, while Osmond dies in 34 AC. So that's a bit of a gap there, about 20 years. So it's possible that Lucamore 
is a very young son for Osmond, but it's also possible that maybe there's a generation in between and Luca Morris's grandson. Don't really know here. Any parallels between Osmond Strong and Osmond Kettleblack? I hope not. That would make me feel a lot worse about Osmond Strong and Osmond Kettleblack is a doofus. Oh, is my camera crooked? Maybe it might be. I don't know. I'd be a little bit unfortunate. So we learn about Lucamore that he's apparently a well-known young knight called a broad-shouldered blonde bull. Now that's a description. That is some descriptive language about Lucamore. So this is supposed to give you the impression that maybe he's somebody like Harwin Strong, who was the quote-unquote strongest knight in the realm at his time, or perhaps Duncan the Tall, Brienne of Tarth, you know, these massive physically imposing warriors. That's that's the general vibe you're supposed to be getting here. Looks like it's slanting down into the right. I'll try and fix that one later. We also know that Lucamore has a brother, Sir Brian Strong. He has similar lines about him, a renowned fighter and a knight in his own right, that kind of thing. I think it's also important to have a brief discussion here about like, how do you become famous in Westeros as a knight? Like, how does this even happen? Because there's no internet, there's no newsreels or anything like that. So how exactly does it happen? How do you become a famous knight? Somebody like Jamie Lannister or Loris Tyrell or Barristan Selmy. Well, the way you do it is you have to become famous to the nobles. And the way you do that is usually either battle or you have to do it through tourneys. Like, for instance, is Loris Tyrell actually the best young knight in the Seven Kingdoms? Is he the best fighter in the world? Like, no, probably not, but he's rich and he's famous because he's a Tyrell and because he shows up to all the tourneys, therefore he gets it. This is sort of the thing that you see with like Braun and Servardus, where the best fighter in Westeros is probably some guy sitting in a pub somewhere, not an actual, um, not one of the highborn, you know what I mean? Some guy that's really good at cutting through folks and just doesn't get the acclaim because he hasn't made it to the attention of the, the people who write the histories. And like, for instance, with Loras, we know that Bran dumps him pretty hard in the in the melee that gets her the spot on the Rainbow Guard. But it's Loras who pretty who gets the uh, acclaim for his fighting prowess. So that sort of thing happens all the time. And we know that from a Duncan egg that trying to make it on these tourney circuits is very, very expensive to do. You lose one fight, you might lose your armor and your horse, which you don't have the money to pay for it. Suddenly you're you are shit out of luck. So it's really getting good on tourneys and becoming famous like Lucamore and Bywin are is something that's really only available to the nobles or people that are exceptionally good at uh, jousting. This is what happens in F1 racing. Not exactly the 20 best drivers in the world, but money changes things. Yeah, you have tourney. Tourney famous is a game of money. Largely, you have to have the money to compete and lose and go to the next one, which usually means only Lord's sons can do it. The fact that Dunk actually tries to become like a famous tourney knight and he tries to make money through it is kind of crazy and kind of stupid, but it, it turns out because he's Duncan the Tall. Given Osmond's prominent reign as Hand of the King and Lucamore and Bywin being famous at a young age for being fighters, we can assume that yes, the Strongs were relatively wealthy at this time, and they were able to afford to send these two brothers to tourneys to make names for themselves. The other way is obviously that you could become famous for fighting, like literally going into battle and killing people. The closest time frame here is like the unofficial Dance of the Dragons that happens between Maegor the Cruel and basically everyone else in his family. However, Lucamore being young at 55 AC probably means he's around 20-ish. So he probably wasn't too young for the whole Magor thing. And after Jaehaerys comes to power, there's not really any armed conflicts. There's not a good opportunity for a young knight 
to essentially advance themselves through battle. So it probably had to be these tournaments. Uh, isn't the other Tyrell brother the better fighter, but Loris is the better jester? Yes, that is true. Garland Tyrell is a much more impressive fighter. Loris makes sure he's good at marketing, basically. So everyone thinks he's amazing. That, that's my guess. They Osmond's wealth made it possible for Luca Moore and Bywin to make names for themselves. And obviously it's Hand of the King that would have created connections for the family so they actually get invites, that kind of thing. Irish <laughs> Alchemy says, Loris is the girl who turned up to her first Irish dancing class with hard shoes, soft shoes, and a full-on dress. She wasn't the best, but she already had the stuff. Actually, it's a similar kind of thing. I've been, if you guys have been seeing me on Twitter or Slack, I've been playing, I've been trying to get good at golf. And there's a very common thing where people do the same thing, where there's a minimum amount of money you have to have to even get into the game because there's a point at which equipment does matter. But quite a lot of people try to buy their games, essentially. Same sort of thing here. If you want to be good at jousting, if you want to be good at golf, there's money to spend to make sure that you get there. That kind of thing. Same sort of problem with other sports. I mean, this is totally off topic, off topic but... You want to be good at hockey, you better have a lot of money <laughs> because none of that stuff comes cheap, especially during this time. Actually, horses would have been the biggest cost to maintain one and keep one expensive. So where was I? Oh, yeah. So I think it's definitely possible that Luca Moore Strong spent his time as a tourney night journeying from one tourney to another. There would have been a lot of them during this time frame um, celebrating Jaharis's accomplishments and Alisane's after the fall of Magor. And there are all the marriages and stuff like that. There would have been a lot of opportunities for a young knight to go around and beat in the heads of people in melees and jousts. I would guess probably not a hedge knight if he's able to go to a bunch of tournaments and given Osmond's time as hand of the king. I mean, there may have been very cool tents out there with the colors of the trident fluttering from them for how strong. We can also be certain that the young, broad-shouldered, blonde bull attracted a lot of attention from the opposite sex wherever he went. And Dunk and Egg, the size and strength of Dunk alone are enough to make many, many uh, characters within it, honestly, male and female, to essentially look at Dunk and go like, I want a piece of that hunk. I want to break off a piece of that castle wall. <laughs> uh, so if Lucamar is a similar size and strength and perhaps looks if they're related, then you can imagine this sort of thing happened too. Dunk narrowly avoids getting laid in all three stories so far. Maybe he did in the second one. Maybe him and Rohane Weber got down. Didn't we figure out in Duncan Ed that if you unhorse someone in the joust, you win their horse? Yeah, that's a big thing, especially in the Mystery Knight and the Hedge Knight. Dunk really faces the economics of it. And um, the snail, I forget his, his name, he essentially tells Dunk to take to throw. And if he does so, they can become like a team where everyone bets on where they arrange it so that in the list that Dunk ends up against the snail, who's way less physically imposing, but a much better jouster, and get everyone to bet on Dunk. Meanwhile, they bet on the snail and they make a fortune. It's a way to get around the fact that you can lose your armor and your horse in these jousts. Panty drop and looks. Yeah, Dunk um, Dunk has that animal magnetism, I guess, that big hembo energy. So we can assume that Lucamore probably did as well, based on what we know about him. And his lustiness, yeah, that seems a little likely, doesn't it? Yeah. And much like Harwin Strong and perhaps Lionel Strong, that Lucamore was a lusty lad from a young age. He may have pulled his own Garth Greenhand and left a trail of children across the Seven Kingdoms. In a lot of ways, Amanda brought this up and I did too in my videos, Lucamore is framed as like a realistic version of the legendary figure of Garth Greenhand. You know, just about every noble house in the Reach can trace their history back to a child of Garth, 
And it's because very few of the supposed children of Garth <clears throat> were from marriages, to say the least. I got the quote here for it. Garth Greenhand brought the gift of fertility with him, nor was it only the ground that he made fecund, for the legends tell us that he could make barren women fruitful with a touch. Yowza. Even crones whose moon blood no longer flowed, maidens ripened in his presence, mothers brought forth twins and even triplets when he blessed them, young girls flowered at his smile. Lords in common and alike offered up their virgin daughters to him wherever he went, that their crops might ripen and their trees grow heavy with fruit. There was never a maid that he deflowered who did not deliver a strong son or fair daughter nine moons later or so the stories say. So... That's obviously played up for legend, but the basic story there is like Garth would just travel around having all the sex. And that was kind of like a first men thing. That's kind of what you see from the Strongs. Harwin in particular, Duncan the Strong, Duncan the Tall, I mean, if he's actually a member of how strong like we think, same sort of thing. And Luca Moore, as we discuss later, definitely pulls this shit. <laughs> strongs kind of populated the Crownlands. Yeah, there's a lot of Strongs around the Crown Crownlands and the Riverlands. And actually a few more surprising regions. Uh, this is one of those things where when I get asked about it, like how many descendants of how many Strongs are actually alive? Well, technically zero, but in realistic fashion, the amount of kids churned out just by Harwin, Lucamore and Dunk, it would be a very high percentage of people in Westeros that are related to them. Yeah, making the eight, making eight is probably like a first man thing. Can you imagine you just smile at somebody and <laughs> nope. Nope, can't imagine it. Big dunk energy. Oh my god, BD. <laughs> that should be a t-shirt. That should be it. So yeah, this is basically saying the same thing for Lucamore, and this will be very relevant for him. So as I said, he rose to prominence in 55 AC with a celebration of the completion of the Dragon Pit in King's Landing. Jaharis and Alisane decided to hold another great tourney to celebrate the event. And it's inside the Dragon Pit itself, which sounds badass. Uh, obviously, before the dragons are there, they held a grand melee. Now, if you don't remember, melees are supposed to be kind of non-lethal events, although they do end up that way that sometimes where the knights fight each other on horse and then eventually on foot after they knock each other off, basically into submission. Your basic thing is it's a bunch of guys in a ring all hitting each other with maces and swords, usually blunted, essentially just trying to get them to give up. And in this melee, 77 knights entered, which is a pretty giant number. And it fought down to the last man, Sir Lucamore Strong, who bested all comers. He beat down, well, probably not 76 exactly, but he beat a lot of people and showed a lot of stamina in order to uh, win that melee. It's it's no mean feat to beat a melee. A lot of times, though, you'll hear that like a particular king or prince won. But you have to keep in mind from Duncan Egg that there's a lot of politics in melees and jousts about people losing on purpose to people they're trying to suck up to. So the fact that Lucamore won is not because of his name. He won because of his skill. There's a whole list of the knights and champions that showed up. I mean, you get lordlings, you get masters at arms, champions from other tournaments, proud favorites. Although notably, there are two people that got held back. Uh, Jonquil Dark, the Scarlet Shadow. And Tom the Strummer from the Kingsguard were not allowed in the fight by Alisane, but basically all the best fighters in Westeros were there, except for those two. And this may literally have been the tournament that started off Lucamore's fame. Certainly everyone took notice when the strong blonde man stood the winner, probably the massive strong blonde man, and in particular, the royal couple. Remember last great night super chat from a little bit ago? They do remember 
the the champion of the dragon pit tourney to say the least oh they remember him <laughs> big dunk energy so but that is not actually when lucamore joins the kingsguard it's in 56 ac a year later because sir william the wasp of the kingsguard is sent to essos to investigate the rumors that there's a dragon loose in Pentos. Jaehaerys reasons that perhaps this is one of the eggs that Alyssa Farman stole that has been bought and hashed by somebody out there, or it's possibly Valerian the Black Dread who went missing with Princess Aurea. As it turns out, there was no dragon to be found in the hills of Andalos and Pentos. It's instead a bunch of uh, sheep smugglers and brigands. They ambush Sir Willem and his men. They kill him, kill Willem the Wasp. And they actually send his head back to Jaharis via Rigo, Rigo Draz's agents. Now, it's quite possible that this is not actually a group of brigands that did it, that this was perhaps a message to Jaharis about what the SOC thought about the Targaryen kings sending soldiers into their territory. That's certainly a possibility considering they sent back the head. Irregardless, this means for the Kingsguard that now one of its most celebrated champions from the War for the White Cloaks is dead. If you don't remember, the War of the White Cloaks was from Jaharis and Alisane. They sponsored, they had five open spots on the King's Guard after deposing Magor, so they held a seven-day tournament that promised a spot on the King's Guard for the winners, making the spots contingent on, you know, actual fighting abilities and not political favors that the later King's Guard appointments often became. So in this vein, when Sir Willem falls, the world couple remember that, hey, it was a good idea to grab guys that actually know how to fight to guard us. And they remember that melee from the previous year where, previous year where that, that guy, what was his name? Lucamore Strong. Yeah, that guy. He beat all comers down. He's probably the best warrior in Westeros. I mean, sort of. And they honored Sir Lucamore with a white cloak to join the Kingsguard, which he accepts. Things, ominous signs there with Lucamore the lessee joining a chaste organization. So yeah, get ready for that shit. That's not going to go that well. But that doesn't happen actually for quite a long time into Lucum's stay on the Kingsguard. He pops up, pops up next in Fire and Blood while on duty guarding Magor's Holdfast when, out of nowhere, the lost dragon Balerion the Black Dread returns suddenly to King's Landing along with his last known rider, Princess Araya, daughter of Reyna. It's actually Lucamore who discovers her. If you may remember from Fire and Blood, Aurea disappeared two years, I forget the actual time frame when she returns, but she disappeared in a rage against her mother Reyna in an argument over if she could go back to King's Landing or not because she hated it on Dragonstone and didn't like Reyna very much. Uh, she mounts Beleriand and flies away. And we get probably one of the most horrifying scenes in all of Fire and Blood, which I'm going to go ahead and read to you because this will be fun. <laughs> uh, Beleriand's shadow swept across the yards and halls of the Red Keep as he came down, his huge wings buffeting the air. The land in the inner ward by Magor's holdfast. Scarcely had he touched the ground than Princess Aurea slid from his back. Even those who had known her best during her years at court scarce recognized the girl. She was near enough to naked as to make no matter, her clothing no more than rags and tatters clinging to her arms and legs. Her hair was tangled and matted, her limbs as thin as, sti as, thin as sticks. Please, she cried to the knights and squires and serving men who had seen her descend. Then, as they came rushing over to her, she said, I, I never, and collapsed. Sir Lucamore Strong had been on his post on the bridge across the dry moat surrounding Magor's holdfast. Shoving aside the other onlookers, he lifted the princess in his arms and carried her across the castle to Grand Maester Benefer. Later, he would tell anyone who would listen that the girl was flushed and burning with fever, her skin so hot he could feel it 
even through the enameled scale of his armor. She had blood in her eyes as well, the knight claimed, and there was something inside her, something moving that made her shudder and twist in my arms. Gross. We all know what actually happens here. If you remember, it ends up being pretty gross. Fireworms essentially erupt from Araya, took her from the inside and kill her. You know, the horrors of what happens to Araya beside. There's an important thing here in particular for Lucamar, other than he happens to be the guy that was there when Araya touched down. And that is that Lucamore had a bit of a loose tongue, to say the least. He started telling everyone about the event, and Jaharis actually had to formally chastise Lucamore. And it seems like he probably did it in front of the court because it made it into the histories, saying essentially, hey man, maybe don't talk about everything you see to everyone you meet. Like, part of your job as the Kingsguard is a bit more than just swinging swords at people. And this paints Lucamore as perhaps maybe a bit more innocent or perhaps. A bit like Dunk, you know, thick as a castle wall. The biting of his tongue is something that Dunk learns over time, but it often gets him in trouble when he's younger. And where was Lucamar telling people about this cool event? Well, as we'll get to, it's very likely the people in the taverns and brothels of King's Landing, because that seems to be the kind of place that Lucamar liked to go see, maybe even Flea Bottom. I mean, he's undoubtedly a great fighter and a loyal bodyguard to the Targaryens, but he doesn't seem to have mastered, you know, an important aspect of that job. He has to keep secrets for Magor under different kings, like, let's say, Magor the Cruel or Ares II. This kind of thing may have gotten his tongue ripped out. They punished a lot of people for a lot less than spreading this kind of gossip. In fact, I believe that's happened to Illin Payne. It was an off-color joke, basically, about how Tywin was the real power in King's Landing made Sir Illin lose his tongue. This isn't a good thing for a Kingsguard to be doing. And perhaps after this uh, chastising about by Jaharis, Lucamore learned to be mm, a bit more secretive in the things he gets up to. <laughs> bit more secretive. Yeah, thick as a castle wall. I mean, I think that's what you're supposed to understand about this. Dunk definitely gets in trouble for saying things at the wrong time or saying things to the wrong person, letting things slip. So that connection to Lucamore seems pretty on point for a personality. And although he's known for his loose tongue and gossip, he makes a very, very strong impression on Jaharis and Alisane other than just winning a melee. He's more than just a sword arm. He's well known for being friendly, amiable, and popular among the court and small folk alike. Again, this good-natured popularity is something we see from Duncan the Tall. In The Hedge Knight, he basically becomes like a hero of the small folk for fighting against Arion. It may be that this is, again, a hint to the fact that they have a similar personality. Duncan was well-liked easily by most people he met. And in particular, uh, these charms worked on the royal couple. They were very fond of Lucamore. They became friends and often spoke together, and he may have been their favorite Kingsguard, the one that they kept around just because they liked hanging out with them. In my video on, on the secret strong, the secret Starks in the Riverlands, I speculate that Lucamore may even be a valuable source of information for Queen Alysanne, as there's a particular time when she tells Alaric Stark that she's aware that there are more old god worshippers in the south than just the Blackwoods, perhaps as many as a dozen. And it seems that most of the old god worship, the secret stuff, is probably around the Riverlands. So perhaps the reason she knows this is because one of her best friends is a guy from the Riverlands who's known for gossip. Or perhaps he knows something a little more about how strong, like, 
I mean, we follow the face of the seven, but those weirwoods are really cool, that kind of thing. Alisane actually goes out of her way to even increase old god worship in the Riverlands because she helps with a lot of marriages from Northmen into the Riverlands, importing a lot of old god worshippers there, which probably didn't help out with the, the faith of the seven. But it's a weird thing she did, and given her, she probably did not get this from, from what's his name? From Septim, Lucamore Strong seems like a pretty good candidate for who would have said this. <laughs> I thought thick as a castle wall meant that Dunk had a, <laughs> a parapet in his pants. I mean, we certainly don't know what kind of sword Dunk had, but probably an impressive one. Just Britvex says, Dunk is too naive to know that people can use the information he gives them to their advantage and someone else's disadvantage exactly. That seems to be very similar to what we're seeing here from Lucamore. To him, it's like, oh, who cares? Like, this is just kind of a weird story. But you can see why Jaharis and Alisane may have wanted to keep the whole fireworm shit under wraps and may have been worried about what else he was gossiping about. If there's anybody that could wield ice, it would probably be Dunk. It's the real big broadsword is what I'm saying. Speculation, but it kind of fits if you're looking for how exactly this would end up. I talked about this during the Alice Rivers stream and also previously about Hall. that Alice really seems to take up the appearance and the activity of almost an old god priestess when she takes control of Hall. It might be that the Strongs did not totally let the old ways go dead when they, I mean, they do have knights in their family, but they, there's some secret weirwood worship in there. They certainly act like first men ancestors who had very, very different ideas about marriage and sex than the very uptight and alls, you know. So there's also something to keep in mind here. This actually is what the last great night was talking about a little bit. I th this will be a future video. I'm definitely going to do this one about Jaharis and Alisane and Lucamore. So I have this tinfoil theory rolling around in my head about in particular Alisane and the blonde bull. There's one child in particular of Alisane that stands out and gets a lot of very strange characterization from George, uh, much in the same way that Jace Valarion, aka Jace Strong, gets. And that is Alyssa Targaryen. She is Alysanne's fifth child born in 60 AC, which is four years after Lucamore is given his white cloak and buddies up to the royal family. Alyssa has dirty blonde hair. Lucamore has blonde hair. Mismatched eyes of purple and green, a lopsided smile, and big ears. Now, these are more common traits. This is the same sort of thing that you hear about how people are like, well, I know these aren't Lenor's kids because they look like just like a random dude from the Riverlands, which is perhaps what's going on here. Also, she's the infamous Targaryen who's known for basically being a sex addict, I guess, who annoyed the residents of King's Landing with her screaming in bed. She's also the character that says these lines, these amazing lines. <laughs> This is one of those things that when Fire and Blood came out that it really sticks out. It's like, why is George giving, making Alyssa talk this way? So this is read them and then we'll get back to that. She said, I mounted him and took him for a ride. I mean to do the same tonight. I love to ride. Wow. Okay, Alyssa, you were made for battles and I was made for this. Viserys and Daemon and Aegon, that's three. As soon as I am well, let's make another. I want to give you 20 sons, an army of your own. Keep in mind the number. And then she has to say, Red Maidens, the both of us, but now we've both been mounted. About herself, she's talking here about herself and her dragon, Melis, the Red Queen. So I think there's, if there's one word to describe Alyssa Targaryen, it is lusty, to say the least. Large number of children, the apparent big love of sex and doing dangerous things. She's also known as 
character that takes a lot of risks in her youth. She takes her babies up on Melis, that kind of thing. So I have a sneaking suspicion that Luca Moore's closeness to a royal couple, and in particular Alisane, and then Alyssa's peculiar characterization in Fire and Blood may hint towards the fact that Luca Moore and Alisane may have been more in the, the cloth of Rhaenyra and Harwin being in play, or the, the lusty, handsome, amiable, and strong Sir Luca Moore. I'll explore that much more in a video. I'll probably actually like try and prove it and find more examples. But that's one of those things that I was like, George, this is a really weird thing to talk about if it's if it doesn't have some reason. And if it's perhaps because Alyssa is a another strong bastard, like seems to often happen in uh, Fire and Blood, then that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> is that Damon's mom, too? Oh, there you go. There's a there's a strangeness to how much the strongs end up with the Targaryens. They seem to have like their feints intertwined or something. It would make a lot of sense if Luca Moore is playing the same role with Queen Alicent. I know. I know. I'm sorry, guys. I just besmirched goods Queen Alicent. I said that she cheated on Jaehaerys with a Kingsguard knight, but it's, it's a bit weird. It certainly uh, sticks out. Oh, good call, Emma. Emma Smith says, any head nod in this to Alice Rivers' Alyssa name similarities? Perhaps. Very much so. George is a big fan of using names that way. How long are we going for? About an hour. So we got an hour left. So we're about to get to the part where Lucamore gets in a lot of trouble. Okay. The gang joins the Night's Watch. So the beginning of the end for Lucamore is another Kingsguard spot that opens up. With the outbreak of the Shivers throughout King's Landing, two members of the Kingsguard end up dead. Once again, Jaharis and Alisane decide to choose from tournament champions and skilled warriors instead of political appointments. This time they choose Sir Ryan Redwine and Sir Robin Shaw to receive their white cloaks in 60 AC. 60 AC, if you remember, that is the same year Alyssa Targaryen was born. Sir Ryan had previously gained his reputation by defeating Ukamor Strong, among others, in the 10-year coronation tourney. And after he did so, Sir Ryan did something unusual that's noted in Fire and Blood. He crowned good Queen Alysanne as his queen of love and beauty. If my theory about perhaps Luca Moore and Alysanne is correct, this may have a bit more to it than meets the eye. But just sort of going against, uh, just sort of leaving that aside for a second. Besides this, it seems that maybe Ryan and Luca Moore did not see eye to eye on things, especially after maybe Ryan tossed them in the joust. Why? Because it is Sir Ryan Redwine that narks on Luca Moore. 13 years after receiving his white cloak, it is Sir Ryan himself that decides to let everybody know about what's going on with uh, Sir Luca Moore Strong. I have a bit of a conspiracy theory about that. Maybe something like, again, this is a maybe this is a echo of Kristen Cole and Harwin Strong and Rhaenyra, that kind of thing. Certainly a plot line we already have seen George write in this exact book. But anyway, so the quote here goes, near, near year's end, a shameful revelation came to light that shocked both court and city. The amiable and well-loved Sir Lucamore Strong of the Kingsguard, a favor of the small folk, was found to have secretly wed, despite the vows that he had sworn as a white sword. Worse, he had not taken one, but three wives, keeping each woman ignorant of the other two and fathering no fewer than 16 children on the three of them. And flea bottom along and along the street of silk, where whores and panders ply their trade, men and women of low birth and lower morals took a wicked pleasure in the fall of an anointed knight, made body japes about Sir Lucamore the Lusty. But no laughter was heard in the Red Keep. Jaehaerys and Alysanne had been 
especially fond of Lucamore Strong and were mortified to learn that he had played them both for fools. So, yeah, Lucamore, <laughs> he took three women for wives. I mean, three? I, I don't, it, this one's hard to understand. Like, I can certainly understand the idea that, you know, if you're a Kingsguard and you, you're lusty to begin with, sleeping around is fine, but why take all three to wife? Well, I think the reason may be that Lucamore may have felt he was a bit untouchable because he not only broke his vows of chastity on the Kingsguard, but also the fate's prohibition on polygamy. That the polygamy thing that they only bent for the Targaryens on account of the fact that, you know, they threatened to burn down Old Town. I want to point out again, this is extremely first men-like behavior. Lucamore is garthing to the max. This is the kind of thing that we see a lot of the time from, from first bend legends, that sort of thing. It just it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason to marry all three of them. It has to be that Lucamore was just like, what's going to happen? I'm like best friends with the, with the royal family. And it's a bit curious that Lucamore may have felt that he was uh, a bit untouchable because untouchable in this way, although this is not by any means the first time a Kingsguard we're running off to the brothels and keep in secret lovers. There's a very quiet understanding among the white cloaks that much like in the Night's Watch that they can sort of carry on as long as they don't push it too far if they're discreet and they are in good graces with the royals and the rest of their brothers, which, as we learned about Lucamore, he very much was with Jaehaerys and Alysanne and probably with the rest of the court. He seems like he was a very popular guy, but it's a, a very dangerous game, you know. You can go to Molestown every once in a while, but you probably can't keep three wives there. That's kind of pushing it to the max. Got cocky. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, horny jails garthing to the max. Yeah, maybe I can change the name of the channel in the Slack. So actually, Dornish Dane brings up something about, like, how did this happen? I'm going to get to that in a second. So personally, I find it extremely unlikely that the giant, broad-shouldered, blonde bull and a very popular character within King's Landing in the court could be spending his nights outside of King's, outside of the Red Keep and the White Sword Tower, carrying on with three wives at the same time, with who knows how many other lovers he had, and not been noticed he was doing this. Like, we learned already that Lucamore is not the most savvy guy that he's known for gossip and that he kind of like dunk gets into situations where he doesn't quite understand the consequences of what he's doing. It's not like he's Varys or Littlefinger. It's not like, or he's Arya where he's running around. It's he's very much like dunk people recognize dunk just from his size alone. And you could imagine uh, the same thing could have happened here for Lucamore. And again, if you're maintaining three different wives across King's landing with all those children, like, that's a massive time sink. People must have noticed long before the 13 years where Sir Ryan essentially dropped the dimes on him to get him in trouble that like, hey, what the fuck's Lucamore doing with all his time? Why is he always running off? They had to have noticed. So it seems very likely to me that there were quite a few members of the Jaharis and Alisane administration who were aware of Lucamore's indiscretions in the night, but they probably let it go because the king and the queen told them to, or maybe just the queen told them to. But it's it's also perhaps that it's not the fact that he was just breaking his vows, that maybe he was pushing the the multiple wives thing. So yeah, I don't really buy the whole shock of the court like, oh my God, Lucamore has been running off and carrying on with a whole bunch of women. I think they probably knew that was happening, but I don't think they they may not have known the extent. 
or more likely, maybe he something else happened that causes Sukumore's popularity and trust with the royal couple to plummet. Just saying. It's your theory. Watch out for it. So Jaharis and Alisane are notably quite furious, and I thought that I would read their epic speeches because they actually are a bit important maybe to understanding what happened here and in the future for theory. So here it goes. When dragged before the Iron Thorn throne, Sir Lucamore fell to his knees, confessed his guilt, and begged the king for mercy. Jaharis might well have granted him same, but the errant knight made the fatal error of appending for the sake of my wives and children to his plea. As Septim Barth observed, this was tantamount to throwing his crimes in the king's face. When I rose against my uncle Magor, two of his king's guard abandoned him to fight for me, Jaharis responded. They might well have believed they'd be allowed to keep their white cloaks once I'd won, perhaps even be honored with lordships and a higher place of court. I sent them to the wall instead. I wanted no oath breakers around me then or now. Sir Lucamore, you swore a sacred vow before gods and men to defend me and mine with your own life, to obey me, fight for me and die for me if need be. You also swore to take no wife, father no children, remain chaste. If you could shrug aside the second vow so easily, why should I believe you would honor the first? So what we're being told here is that apparently Jaharis was like, um, all right, maybe mercy, but apparently it's the it's the children and the wives thing that really got him going. And it was actually something from the Slack that Archmaester Emma noticed that I hadn't noticed when I had read this before. She said, a fun nod I noted to Sir Duncan the Strong I spotted once. When he's being admonished, admonished by Jaharius for being too horny, yes, for Garthing to the max, Lucamore is named an errant knight. And a knight, I'm not going to try and pronounce this, but it's I think it's errant, errant, is an Arthurian term for a wandering knight, aka a hedge knight. So that's a good call there by Emma. Yeah, knight errant stories are very popular. Duncan uh, Duncan Egg is very obviously a knight errant story. They generally fall into the um, like holy grail quests or sort of along that I idea. But you see them in modern times too. It's the kind of like the wandering warrior thing. So if he's be if if Lucamore is being called a wandering knight, yeah, that could be a pretty good like small hint back to him being Duncan the Tall. Good eye, Emma. I had never noticed that one before. Just crushing it. And then, but then we get Alisane's criticism of Lucamore, and it's very different from Jaharis's. Then Queen Alisane spoke up, saying, You made a mockery of your oaths as a knight of the King's Guard, but those were not the only vows you broke. You dishonored you dishonored your marriage vows as well, not once but thrice. None of these women were are lawfully wed, so these children I see behind you are bastards one and all. They are the true innocents in this, sir. Your wives are ignorant of another, of one another, I am told, but each of them must have surely known that you are a white sword, a knight of the king's guard. To that extent, they share your guilt, as does whatever drunken septon you found to marry you. For them, some mercy may be warranted, but for you, they will not have you near my lord, sir. There is no more to be said. As the false knight's wives and children wept or cursed or stood silent, Jaharis commanded that Sir Lucamore be gelded forthwith and clapped in irons and sent off to the wall. The Night's Watch will require vows from you as well, his grace warned. See that you keep them, or the next thing you lose shall be your head. Yeah, Emma says, I love the minor details. Gurn putting things errant night is so unnecessary to include, but it's there. And it kind of squares with the fact that probably Lucamore was an errant knight or a wandering knight before he came to the Kingsguard. So I want to make note here of the different arguments that Jaharis and Alisane put forward on what Lucamore did that was so wrong. Jaharis specifically focuses on the idea that because he broke one vow, 
he cannot trust him to keep his word to him and his family that he's basically an oath breaker. You know, he brings up the idea that he punished Magor's Kingsguard who helped him for the same reason. Alisane, though, focuses much more on the idea that the marriages themselves and keeping each of them ignorant from each other means that he was not only unfaithful to the royal family, but he was un he was unfaithful to each of the women. That it was that was a very bad thing that he did. Not even really on a religious things, but that he misled them. Kind of a curious thing for Alisane to bring up. So it's basically the idea that by carrying on with three women at the same time, he essentially cheated on each of them with the others because they didn't know about the arrangement. It sort of sounds like the argument someone would make if they just found out that they were not, you know, the only lover of a guy. Perhaps, just saying, maybe if Alisane thought she was the only person that Luca Moore was shacking up with and suddenly found out there were three other women with all these children, maybe she would have been a little upset about that. Who knows? This... Just making some arguments. I find that I find that part fascinating. Just looking at the differences and what they think Lugamore did that was such a problem. Sixteen women, sixteen children between three wives. Yeah, he's doing a Robert Baratheon speed run here. He is. Yeah, Lugamore, what the fuck were you thinking? Does Gelden mean he got this nuts chopped off or to go full Theon? I think it means. I think Gelding is just the removal of the testicles. Am I gonna Google this? Damn right I am. I'm actually not quite sure. Just keep that one in mind that perhaps Alisane's particular arguments are maybe personally motivated more than just like a general, how dare you treat these women badly in between themselves. Maybe she's counting herself among them. So what happens next? Overshadowing this whole thing is that in the same year, Reyna Targaryen, who was living out her final years in Harrenhal, ended up dying. And it was Lucamore's brother, Bywin Strong, that went from a Sir to Lord Bywin when he's made Lord of Harrenhal. You can probably see that this was perhaps a favor to the Strong family and to their best bud, Lucamore, since obviously as a Knight of the Kingsguard, he can't be giving a lordship, but, you know, Bywin can be. And, you know, it's a recognition of the many years of leal service, basically, the Strongs have given to the uh, Targaryens in less than 100 years. They've done quite a lot for them. In a very short amount of time. But again, this happens about half a year before Lucamore is found out. That's a little bit of egg on their face. Oh yeah, please, if you could, y'all slam that MF and like button. 97 likes, 115 people watching. We probably won't reach 150 today, but hey, do it anyway. Maybe we'll get some more people interested in Lucamore the Lusty. Just the testicles. Okay, that sucks. Uh, so as stated, Lucamore is indeed gelded and he is sent off to the Night's Watch. But the royal couple is noticeably extremely lenient to Lucamore's children, his wives, and the strong family in general. Again, if you think about if this had happened maybe under the reign of Magor the Cruel, Aegon the Unworthy, or Aerys II, it's quite possible that Lucamore's crimes could have meant the entirety of how strong and Lucamore's relatives may have found themselves perhaps decorating the spikes of King's Landing. The Jaehaerys and Alistanen instead were quite, quite, quite lenient. Jaehaerys actually, and this is something that I thought was interesting, I don't really know why he did this, he declines to decide what to do with the family of Lucamore. Instead, he gives, he gives the responsibility to Alisane to decide, which suggests that maybe the leniency was her idea, like, well, if you want to give them leniency, you work out what to do with them kind of thing. So she says that any of Lucamore's sons that want to can get a free ride to the Night's Watch with Lucamore. Two, the two eldest sons choose to do so. 
She also says, if any of you want to join the faith, we will pay for you to go become septas and join the seven. Only one child does that. So of the 16, we have 13 children left who are not in the Night's Watch and are not in the faith of the seven at this point. And they're all bastards from King's Landing. So what to do here? What to do? What do you do with 13 kids and three wives if you're Alisane Targaryen? She doesn't really have to do anything like she's not going to offend anybody if she like exiles them or something like that, because nobody cares about them. The Strongs are not that powerful. Bywin's probably pretty furious about Lucamore's indiscretions. He's being sent to the Night's Watch anyway. You don't have to do anything for them. And instead, Alisane rewards these children, as she calls them, innocents and their mothers in a really big way. So the first thing she does is she officially makes them bastards of Lucamore Strong, making them, you know, they get the last names like I talked about last stream. They're not just, you know, son of Lucamore. They, be, they become rivers. They become waters, that kind of thing, which is an important distinction, distinction within Westerosi culture. I mean, bastards are not looked well upon, but it is a step up from the peasantry to be one, basically. So first thing she does is she takes the first wife and her children and Alisane sends them off to... Lucamore's brother, Lord Bywin Strong at Harrenhal to be raised and fostered. That one makes sense. Send them back to their family. But she doesn't send all of them there. Next. Well, actually, before we get to that, I suggested during my Alice Rivers stream that Alice may be descended from this group of bastards that showed up in King that showed up in Harrenhal. It's not a particularly big time frame. So perhaps Bywin and the rest of the Strong family were not super happy to have to deal with Lucamore's kids who showed up from King's Landing and suddenly are a lot more equal than they would like. But with that speculation aside, what this does mean is that from this point forward, from about 73 AC onwards, you have to assume that there's quite a lot of strong bastards that are running around Harrenhal area. So when you're talking about nightly houses that sort of pop up out of nowhere or bastard characters, you probably should think of Lucamore's kids especially if they take after their father, if they were particularly lusty. I mean, even if all of them only have like five kids each, that's that's a giant population increase in the Harrenhal area of Lucamores. Keep that in mind. But then the next one is totally inexplicable. There's no reason for this. The second wife and children of Lucamore are sent to House Valarian and to be raised and fostered personally by Lord of the Tides and Grand Admiral Damon Valarian, fostered, not just sent to live in Driftmark somewhere to be abandoned in Hull or Spice Town. Actually, Spice Town doesn't exist at this point. They're supposed to be fostered by Lord Damon. That is far and away more than Alisane had to do for these kids. There's a lot there, like getting a fostering by somebody as powerful as the Valarians, even at this point before Corlys really. Um, set them up to be important is a huge, huge deal. This is the kind of thing that would be done for princes and lordlings, not bastards of Lucamore Strong. So th th this one is totally inexplicable. They are fostered. Why does this happen? Not explained. Alisane doesn't explain herself. The book doesn't explain it. It's an amazing gift to these children to be to have this done to them. And then we get to the third wife, as if almost to up herself. Alisane then takes the last wife of Lucamore and his children. And they, where does she send them? The Baratheons. She sends them to Lord Borman Baratheon. And I think it's his, he was quite young at the time. So I think I was being ruled by Garen Baratheon. All these kids are also to be fostered within the household of House Baratheon. Every single one of them. And then each of the kids is given bastard names corresponding to the region. So 
They become rivers, waters, and storm. Uh, Ramona in the chat says maybe the mothers are from Driftmark and Stormlands and of noble birth. I think that would have been noted. I, I, the impression I got is that these were just random women that Lucamore let met among King's Landing. Maybe that would explain why, but there's no real reason given for why these kids are given essentially a privileged lifestyle and a massive step forwards in Westerosi society when there's no reason to do it. The sneaky one to keep in to keep in mind though as we're talking about like what happened to Lucamore's kids, remember that two of his sons went with him to the Night's Watch to become brothers. So, but they were not gilded like their father was. So it's quite possible that they went on to have children in the Night's Watch area, which also is the area around the Umbers, that kind of thing. Aha, in the chat Maldania, I think you picked the words out of my mouth. Maybe it was done to keep Lucamore's mouth shut about uh, his relationship with the king and the queen, or just the queen in particular. It's a great gift that Alisane does, and it's one that Jaharis forces her to do. So there's certainly something there. This is extremely strange behavior. You would not expect to see this for anybody else. And as I said, a lot of monarchs would have sent them all to the Night's Watch, would have sent them all to the Faith, or they would have ex exiled them from the kingdoms. Alisane goes above and beyond. And, and in case, just to reiterate the point, fostering of children is often a, a, a tremendous reward for lordlings and their, and their parents because these fosterings can create relationships for the, the future rulers that last throughout their lives. They're often a key part in marriage packs and peace alliances, the, giver, the fostering of children. So this shows, at the very least, tremendous kindness from Alisane but probably deep affection for Lucamore that she may have. It's it's quite clear she was angry at him, but she did something very, very kind and generous for his kids. Power thruple. Good God. <laughs> so that sort of ends the story of Lucamore, Lucamore strong, but there's a few other things to talk about here. So when Fire and Blood first came out, a Crow Foods daughter and I geeked out about this information because it gave honestly a lot of evidence to her theory about Duncan the Tall being a strong but also the idea is that there are a lot of secret strong pockets across Westeros. Like Amanda had for a while speculated that maybe the Baratheons were related to the Lucamore Strong or Duncan the Tall, but she couldn't really figure out how. But then suddenly Fire and Blood comes out and it drops that, by the way, there's a whole bunch of strong bastards raised with the with House Baratheon. And it's notable that it's the Baratheons are not always depicted like the giants, the giant lusty men that you have like from Robert Baratheon and Lionel the Laughing Storm. Even the artwork from Fire and Blood from this time frame shows the, the Baratheons as sort of normal looking dudes, not the gigantic war hammer wielding uh, characters we come to know. So if you wanted to perhaps project or create a link between how do you get from Lucamore Strong or the Strong family into the Baratheons, well, these children showing up and being fostered perhaps go some way that perhaps Lucamore's children took advantage of their fostering in the Baratheon household in this generation or perhaps in the future, and they found their way into the bloodline, uh, which actually makes the duel between Duncan and Lionel Laughing Storm oh, quite a bit more interesting because it would mean that it may both be descendants of Lucamore Strong fighting on either side of them to decide this uh, civil war. We're <laughs> muscled like a maiden's fantasy. Yeah, that's right. The seed is strong within House Baratheon. It may be a secret, well, maybe may a little hint for George when he has John Aaron say that, although it would have been backfilling because the Strongs didn't exist at the beginning of A Game of Thrones. They came in much later. The same thing for the Valarians. 
that one blew me away. Like why the Valarians? Why, why, why note, why make it up essentially that these strong bastards end up on Driftmark within the Valarian family? Well, if you may remember at the end of the Dance of the Dragons, Lenor and Lena are dead as are the quote unquote strong bastards. And what does Corlys Valarian do? Well, he finds two bastard children, supposedly by Lenor, but probably by himself on the woman Marilda, Marilda of Hull, otherwise known as the Mouse. And this is Alan Oakenfist and this is Adam Valarion. Well, if you read Alan Oakenfist and even like the kind of his name and what that what Oakenfist kind of tells you about him and also how he like got famously duped over when he brought back Viserys, Prince Viserys from Essos and how he paid like a massive fortune he didn't have to. Well, maybe Alan Oakenfish is a bit thick like a castle wall. And it's also noted that it's Adam Valarion who journeyed to the Isle of Faces to meet with the Green Men. So a connection between, an unexpected connection between the Valarians, Aaron Hall, and the Isle of Faces. Maybe that's why Jord noted that in particular these bastards ends up here. It kind of maybe sets an ironic twist where Corlys was trying, maybe trying to get rid of Harwin's kids and accidentally ended up having his house passed to the Strongs anyway. Kind of interesting there. And of course, we have the bastards around Harrenhal. It's a fair guess that at, from this point forward, that many of the knightly houses that emerge from the region to become the lords of Harrenhal, they probably do have bloodline ties to Lucamore through marriages and affairs over the years. In particular, I'm looking at the Wints and the Lostons. They kind of come from nowhere, but then there's a weird connection between Alice Rivers and Danelle Lawson, where they're both considered like witch queens of Harrenhal. They have very similar descriptive language. Their deeds are very similar, even the things that are said about them. So maybe they actually are family through Lucamore. Very, very curious. It's also noted that one way that George could hide this is that Lucamore is blonde. So him, his descendants were pro may have been blonde too. So when you look at perhaps a list of Targaryen, but also the Valarians, through Alan Oakenfist and Adam Valarion. Perhaps it's a way of George trying to disguise where these guys ended up in the world. And we see much the same from uh, Duncan the Tall. If you want to go watch Amanda's video, she goes through it in much more detail, but it seems like his bloodline in particular was spread far and wide after his death. I mean, during his lifetime and after. And after. Suspected descendants of Duncan include Duncan uh, Brienne of Tarth, which seems honestly pretty confirmed. Uh, people have suggested Hodor, Gren, Smallpaw, the Cleganes, among others. Same sort of spread for Lucamore that may have come from Dunk. Just these guys are everywhere. Actually, there's a question here that I forgot to get to from uh, Ramona Zamfir. She wants says, I want to know your opinion on why good Queen Alysanne was so nasty with regards to Lucamore's wives and children. Is it anything to do with Alyssa Targaryen's mismatched eyes? Actually, the other way. She wasn't nasty to them at all. Like, she rewarded them far above what even loyal subjects of the Targaryens sometimes get. She gave them a life. She gave them lives away from King's Landing and the ability to integrate themselves into these powerful houses. So I think it does have to do perhaps with Alyssa Targaryen's mismatched eyes that there's some complicated emotions for Alysanne about how she's angry at Lucamore, but ha still has a lot of affection for him and but doesn't want to take it out on the rest of his family. I mean, she does say that like, oh, you guys are all in on it too, but then she sends them off to these to these magnificent places within Westeros to live. So it wasn't, she didn't do them, she didn't do them bad. She did very good by them. Anyway, are there blood connections from Lostons and Wentz? Not explicitly, but they share their sigil. 
where Lofstens have one black bat on a yellow and white shield, but then the Wents have like 10 bats on a yellow shield. And that kind of thing usually indicates um, that there's some kind of relation between families. Like, for instance, I think it was Makar Targaryen's personal sigil that was like quartered Targaryen dragons. He had like four of them on there. Like, it's very common for sons and descendants, especially to take up personal sigils that are takes on their parents, that kind of thing. What's that, Makar? I think it was Makar. Yeah, his personal sigil was four Targaryen dragons instead of the one Targaryen dragon. So that's that's a similar relationship. So I would wonder if the Wents and the Lothsons are actually somehow connected because that kind of behavior within sigils is very odd. <laughs> so those are some pretty intriguing places to look for. So what is Lucamore's role in the main story? Well, beyond just like the intrigue of him with the royal family and what happened to his kid, Lucamore is used... He's actually named the only named member of House Strong to show up in the main books. In A Feast for Crows, Jamie Lannister and Aris Okart in their POVs both talk about the soiled knight Lucamore in A Feast, yeah, in a feast for Crows. Aris uh, compares himself a lot to Lucamore, thinking about how he has become a soiled knight, how he's breaking his vows, and that maybe his fate will be gelded and sent to the Night's Watch. But he can't stop himself. Even though he knows there are the stakes, he has so, he has so much... I don't know if it's love, but definitely lust for R.M. Martell that he just keeps going back to it, which may be informative for, for Lucamore and perhaps Duncan when he becomes a member of the Kingsguard, that even the threat of what could happen to you for breaking these vows is lesser than the, the way these guys feel, which is, you know, they're human. That kind of shit happens. Jamie also brings up Lucamore in a conversation with Loris. That was the one I started it at the beginning. It's He sort of uses him as a counterexample that... Because Laura starts listing like all of the noble and great knights of the Kingsguard, and then Jamie go just like comes back at him and names all the ones who dishonored themselves. That there has basically his point is that there have been basically as many unfaithful, vow breaking members of the Kingsguard as there have been great heroes who upheld their vows in their entire life. That soiled cloaks are a part of the history of the Kingsguard, which is kind of an interesting thing for Jamie to say. One thing I was thinking about is how this actually connects strangely to Jon Snow and Sam Tarly. Now, they don't necessarily think about Lucamore the Lusty, but he obviously did become a member of the Night's Watch, and so did his sons. So as they struggle with their own per- their own personal foibles, I guess, about Jon with Egret and Sam with Gilly, they are both in a way, living out the same uh, problems that Lucamore had with his vows of chastity versus what their heart is telling them to do. You know, Lucamore is often used as like a bogeyman for these orders, but I think that he represents much more a fundamental flaw in the Night's Watch and the Kingsguard that, that he was a great member of the Kingsguard. The only, he never like fled from battle. He never failed Jaehaerys and Alysanne in his duties, but it's the specific thing, the idea that they have to essentially remove this part of themselves, remove this part of being a human in order to protect the royal family is probably a pretty bad idea because they essentially exiled one of their best knights or, you know, something that ever that people do normally all the time. You know, fall in love, have children, have sex, that kind of thing. Like these are fundamentally human things. And actually, as Eamon Tar, as Maester Eamon says to Jon Snow, what is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind and words, wind and words, 
We are only human, and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tra- tragedy. And that's Lucamore. Lucamore's flaws is that he's human, being forced into a role that asks him not to be anymore. And I think also, if you want to, if you're interested in Lucamore after the stream and you want to read more about him, like what was he like in life? Well, I would totally suggest reading Duncan Egg, but also Aris Okart's chapters in A Feast for Crows and Jamie's as well during this time frame. Both of these characters, all three of these characters, Dunk will later in his life, but Ari's presently and Jamie as well, all struggle with the exact same things that Lucamore did. And actually, Ari's may be a pretty good comp for him because Ari's is kind of a doofus. He's in over his head and what he's doing. He's a young knight who's fallen in with a beautiful woman and doesn't really know what to do with it. So maybe there's something there. I also had some secret tinfoil for you guys. I know there's so much tinfoil in the stream. I think, I think that... Luca Moore may have actually been intended by George not to be Dunk's ancestor, but actually his father when he first uh, came up with Dunk in the Tall. So now go with me here on this. Go with me here. Uh, Luca Moore Strong does not show up in the books at all into A Feast for Crows, which was published in 2005. That is two years after The Sworn Sword came out, which is where Dunk in the Tall speculated about his father. This is what he says. The cook always claimed my father was some teeth or cut purse more like i saw him fang more like most most like i saw him hanged used to tell me but maybe they sent him to the wall when i was squiring for sir ireland i asked him if we couldn't go that way go up that way someday take service at winterfell from other northman castle i had this notion that if only i could reach the wall it might be i'd come across some old man a real tall man who looked like me we never went though Sir Ireland said there were no hedges in the north and all the woods were full of wolves. He shook his head. The long and short of it is most like you're squiring for a bastard. So I think if you take this passage and you compare it to Lucamore Strong, it's actually fairly close in terms of what actually happens to him. That Lucamore was, um, did have children in King's Landing and he was exiled to the wall and he lived out the rest of his days as a tall, strong, broad shouldered bull of a man in Night Watch, Night's Watch Blacks. So it isn't until three years, it isn't until two years later when A Feast for Crows comes out that Lucamore is created as a character and George places him within the time frame of Jaehaerys and Alicent. It's mentioned in one of the quotes that Lucamore was a Kingsguard for the old, the old king, which means Jaehaerys. But before that decision was made, you ha- I think you have to wonder if George toyed with the idea of making them direct descendants. If maybe Lu- moving Lucamore away from Jaehaerys and Alisane's time frame and instead putting him in the Blackfire rebellions. I think that would make a lot of sense. And if if Amanda's theory is true, which I think it is, that Duncan is connected to Lucamore, well, if you wanted to make that like a big reveal, pushing them a lot closer in the time may have made it too obvious, essentially. Like imagine if you hear a story through Duncan Egg of this. Lucamore Strong, who ended up, it was like on the Kingsguard or something like that, and ended up getting exiled to the Night's Watch. And he was a huge fighter and that kind of thing. And he was blonde. And then you have Duncan, and he looks just like that. And those are his descriptions. And there was like a personality mismatch. People might have gone like, oh, hey, maybe there's a connection there. So maybe George moved him apart to make it less obvious. But I I think that's some fairly good tinfoil. I think there's a good shot that George originally intended for Lucamore and Dunk to be father and son rather than great, 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 great grandfather and son, especially as Dunk does end up going to the Night's. Oh, he does go to the Night's Watch with uh, Bloodraven to deliver him there and he ends up in Winterfell. So it could be it's not off the table that Dunk in the future does end up if we ever get these stories 
visiting the Night's Watch and does see the same kind of a tall old man who looks a lot like Dunk. That would be super interesting. Hey Joe, sorry for the off topic. You look young today. Did you do something new? Do I not look young always? Oh no. Oh, apparently we're going to talk about how handsome I look. Okay. What did I do differently? Nothing. I got, I got, maybe I got more sleep than usual. Maybe I'm just happy to be talking about Luca Moore the Lusty. I don't know. I was up pretty late. Me and Mary were up until close to one in the morning, my time finishing up the Dying of the Light chapter. So I don't, I don't know what's different. I didn't do anything different. Speculate in the chat. Did I, how did I appear younger than normal? There it is. Matt bathed in virgin blood. Of course. Of course. I pulled an Alice Rivers and a, and a Danelle Lawson. Perfect. Nailed it. I don't know. My lights are set up exactly the same. Camera's the same thing. I didn't change anything. Maybe I'm just happy. Maybe I'm enjoying myself so I'm smiling a lot more or something like that. The joy I take in the strongs is shining through. Yeah, maybe that's it. So we got a few minutes left here. So if you guys have anything I missed while I was talking, or I guess while I was lecturing, I guess that's more what these are. You know, throw them in the chat at me, bro. I'm going to scroll up and see if I missed any. I probably did. Her name says, Lau Krakow also tells Amy he killed the hound for her. The two of them were to, could this also mirror the dunk Lionel Baratheon battle with strong descendants fighting each other. Yeah, that's actually kind of a thing. If you really take it seriously and you consider how many people in Westeros are probably related to Luca Moore and Dunk, there's probably been quite a few times where they end up fighting each other. Like if you believe that perhaps maybe Sandor and the Cleganes are somehow related to Luca Moore or Dunk, then in the show they had Brienne and Sandor fight. Maybe that will happen in the books, and that would be kind of interesting. Two more descendants of Dunk on either side of each other. Hang on a second. I actually remembered to mute my mic when I coughed. Nailed it. So Magna Meter Mater 2 says the Masseys are a sideline of the Strongs. Alara Massey is the foremother of the Targaryens and the Baratheons. Their cousins wouldn't be strange to foster Strongs within the family. Yeah, there is a connection between the Massey sigil and the Strongs, where the Strongs is essentially just... The three branches, but the Masseys is the same colors on the same white background, background, but going in a spiral. And the spiral thing is usually kind of an ancient thing. So I wouldn't be shocked to find out that there is a connection between the Masseys and the Strongs. That's a good catch right there. I'm surrounded by ass waffles, so I'm glowing. Oh my god. Lara Massey. I don't know that name. Let me look this up. So she married Ethan Valarian. Is it through her? Oh, interesting. So from Massey, you get Alyssa, who married Aenys. And from that, you get House Targaryen. And then you have Alyssa marrying Rogar Baratheon. Oh, that's right. Oh, good call. Yeah, that Alyssa, the one that married Aenys Gar. And oh, wow, that's cool. I didn't notice that. Good catch. If Alyssa's mom, if Alyssa was Damon's mom, she was also Viserys' mom, right? Is that why he would get so triggered when Nira's children were called bastards? Perhaps. Good one, Isabel Domingo. It may... There's a lot of things that suddenly make a lot of sense if you plug in the idea that Alyssa Targaryen may not be Jaehaerys' daughter. Some, some things tend to fall into place, but the biggest one is definitely the why is George giving this very, honestly, lusty characterization to Alyssa Targaryen? Like, what purpose does it serve? Because it just seems like him highlighting that this one girl really likes sex. Well, if it's a character trait that's meant to indicate a true father, then that could be that would add a reason to include it other than just like enjoying writing these very body lines for a character, which he does like doing sometimes. So who knows? There's a target lady who marries a small lord before the conquest. The lord is not named, but they have the sense. That's one of those weird things where there definitely are a bunch of Targaryens out there, just not named. There has to be like, for instance, what happens to Aegon's sisters? No idea. They just kind of disappear, but obviously they had children, so something there. Could call Ramona, so that would make Rhaenyra, Damon, and Harwin all related. Wouldn't that be funny? 
It's actually it's a it's a dance of the dragons, but it's actually a dance of the strongs. <laughs> All, the strongs fighting each other, none of them knowing it. Oh, that is this kind of true in general for these kind of large, powerful European style like uh, medieval families. They actually are all related to each other at some level. Like the Starks like to pretend that they're not related to the Boltons because they've never directly married. But there's not that many noble houses and enough of them have probably shared like a Stark wife, a Stark daughter going off to this house. A couple of generations later, maybe one of them marries a Bolton and that way they end up related. It's just basically like it's not realistic to genetics, but it's realistic to feuds, I guess is the right way to say it. Uh, Dornish Dame, do you think that the tall and large... Gold cloaks, Luther Largent and Jocelyn Bywater could be secret strongs, strongs who were not sent away or who returned to King's Landing. Largent is certainly an interesting name. I would guess that Lucamore probably left a few more kids in King's Landing than just the three wives or around the kingdoms before he became a Kingsguard. But there's also Harwin. I mean, if I had to guess, maybe Harwin is the member of House Strong who actually ended up in the gold cloaks. So if they are related, maybe it's a very distant connection back to him in particular. Yeah, they're all related. They're all killing each other. There's no separation between the families. It's all just all just this, all just them fighting against each other. Melissa Gill says, could Alyssa Targaryen be a chimera mismatch? I usually indicate that. Yeah, that's something that George plays with where Tyrion has the same kind of look. He has the mismatched eyes. His hair is also... That's one of those things where people think that maybe that means that Tyrion is actually the son of Aerys and that he's like a chimera because he has gold and silver hair and mismatched eyes, kind of like Alyssa. So I've never really been clear if if that's what George is doing, why he did it. Like, you don't have to be a chimera to have mismatched eyes like regular people just have it sometimes. Like David Bowie famously had two different colored eyes. So it doesn't have to be in particular chimeras, but George seems to have a thing about eye color. So I'm not really sure. Matt is a beautiful man. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Now I know all the comments are just going to be underneath the stream. It's going to be people talking about my looks. <laughs> God damn it. The seed is strong, spread far and wide. Yeah, the it's I mean, it means what it means for John Aaron, where he's talking about the idea that the Baratheons normally their genetics overpower fair, essentially appearances, blonde and silver haired Targaryen alike. That's what he means. But it's also kind of a like a Johnny Appleseed kind of thing. If you guys are not from America, you never heard of Johnny Appleseed. He's an American folk figure who essentially would walk around planting apple seeds everywhere he went and would make these great apple orchards. Well, George is kind of riffing on that with Garth Greenhand, where instead of planting literal seeds of apple trees, he's planting children. And that's kind of what's going on there. Son of both Ares and Tywin. I don't even know how he would prove that. I don't know. I think Tyrion Targaryen is one of those things that George has played with for a long time, and he's not sure which way he wants to go. He's got it both. He's got it both ways. He could make Tyrion just a weird-looking son of Tywin, or he could do Ares, or I guess he could do both. Why not? They were shitty apples? Oh, no. There's a whole bunch of towns that claim to be Johnny Appleseed's uh, home and that kind of thing. They have a guy who had different color eyes because he was drinking. What? Oh, that's gross. Or car. Any possibility of the Strongs being missed into the Baratheon family? Definitely. I think that for sure the similarities between Robert's character and perhaps Lucamore and Dunk is not unintentional. Like, I think they have the same number of bastard children, right? Like, Lucamore had 16. I think Robert had 16. Or at least a high number in the same range. Seems very similar to me. Johnny Appleseed. Just like Paul Bunyan. One of those weird American folk tales. See, we have ours too. Americans have culture. We have Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed. 
instead of like wolves, a giant lumberjack and a guy that play, plants apples. Good stuff, America. I mean, it does take a little bit of a, fee, a leap of faith that you're you are believing in a fair amount of tinfoil if you're saying that you think that Dunk is related to the Strongs. But I think it's unambiguous after reading Fire and Blood that you're supposed to understand that some amount of Lugamore's bloodline ended up within houses Valarian, Baratheon, probably some, there's probably some bastards around King's Landing and definitely random houses around Aaron Hall would have bas- would have Lucamore's blood as well. The Squonk. There's also the Jersey Devil. That's a good one. Mothman. <laughs> Babe the Blue Ox. Oh my God. Yeah, Bigfoot. I know, I know Johnny Appleseed was a real guy. There's, he's grown into a mythical figure, basically. Also, Danny Boone gets that kind of stuff with him. It's not just Westeros. We had our own Age of Heroes. God bless the USA. Oh, ridiculous. Yeah, if you guys have any last ones. Actually, I forgot to check PayPal. Hang on a second. Let me do this. Oh, I missed one from Danny McKay. He said, happy Saturday. Thank you so much, Danny. This is comment. Show only characters that are not interesting. How dare you? How dare you, Andrew Coyle? I saw that one live. Bad take on a V. If you enjoyed the stream, please make sure that you subscribe, hit that bell button. Check out me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Joe Magician, where I'm doing the Dying the Light read through. Oh, I forgot to post the the outlines for the last two weeks. I'll, I'll post that for you guys. I'm sorry. I forgot about that. I usually post the outlines for people to follow along with while I'm doing these streams. Videos will be coming out. I'm not sure when. They're still in progress. It's they're harder. These ones are harder than normal, but hopefully we'll get back to that soon because I miss making them. I don't want to just stream all the time. I like making like specific theories and essays and stuff like that and getting them out there. So that should be coming up. Next stream will probably be about maybe Lionel Strong. I think we're going to keep the Strong train going for a little bit. Laris, I'm not going to do for a little bit because he's a, he's a bit more complicated of a figure. Like parsing what the fuck Laris is up to is a huge question in Fire and Blood. When I'm not particularly prepared to talk about yet. Oh, and if you want to get a preview of the Dying of the Light stuff before you dive into the whole thing by signing up for Patreon, if you go to chapter two of the read through with disease from History of Westeros, that one is free for anyone to listen to. You can get a feeling for what George's first novel was like, the sci-fi weirdness of it all. It's a real fun ride. Actually, I've been enjoying it so much that I went out, I went out and bought some of his other books. Like, for instance, did you know that George R. R. Martin wrote a book with Daniel Abraham of the Expanse called Hunter's Run um, with his friend Gardner Dozois. I think that's how you pronounce it. This actually is like a book that took 30 years to write where Gardner wrote it first. Then he gave it to George, who got it like three quarters of the way done, but couldn't finish it. Then they gave it to Daniel Abraham, who finished the story. And then the three of them released the actual final novel. Reading, reading his old stuff has been super informative for understanding like how George writes his plots and his characters and how they all link together. But it's also actually just really good on its own. Me and Mary talked about that last night, which will be chapter four will be coming out probably around the 15th. Chapter five will be coming out probably near the end of the month. So look out for that stuff. I actually won't be here this coming week. I have to unfortunately work. So I'll two weeks from now, I'll be streaming again, probably about Lionel Strong, but We'll see what happens in the meantime. I know Radio Westeros is streaming today. They're back. They are streaming about, I think it's Barristan Selmy. Hang on a second. Let me get this one right. Yeah, they're streaming in about 45 minutes with Arjun from Deep Into History podcast talking about Barristan Selmy. It's probably what I'll be watching, to be honest, while I decompress from talking for two straight hours. Thank you guys for hanging out, slamming the like, doing all the things, especially the new patrons and folks that left super chats like Rona Zamfir, Mora Lee, Last Great Night, Danny McKay. Appreciate it. And for 
what should we do? What should be the comment be at the end of this? You know what? Let's let's do this in the comments at the end of this video. Rate in order of likelihood who you think is related to Duncan the Tall. I made a list during this. You can look up Amanda's theory on it back in the day. There's a whole bunch of them. Most likely to least likely. Who do you think in the current story is related to Duncan the Tall?